Good morning. Uh, we're in John 17, coming in in verse 6. I'll read through verse 16. We're coming in partway through Jesus' prayer. This is Jesus speaking to the Father, and he says this, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given, whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, that these these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That's a difficult passage to read. I suggest you uh, read it in your own Bibles to get all the words that I I'm made mistakes on. Um, well, let's pray, and we'll study through this passage. Jesus, we thank you that you pray for those that have been given to you. Uh, we thank you that, that you've allowed us to listen in on your prayers, on this prayer to the Father. Um, we pray, God, now along these same lines for the Son of God to be glorified. We pray um, that we would be kept. Uh, we pray that even as we are in this world, um, we would live according to the truth of, of chapter 16, verse 33, that you have overcome the world. Let us also be overcomers with you. Give us uh, revelation and understanding into this passage. Give us uh, an awareness of your spirit ministering these words to our hearts. Give your church strength with these words and comfort where we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, so I was meaning to make it through 19 this week, but uh, verses 17, 18, and 19 are just too good. So they've got to. We'll start next week off with with those verses. Uh, but last week when we started this prayer, um, this beautiful prayer, I, I said that it would not be wrong to say that this is the best prayer in all of Scripture, uh, as it is the only long form prayer of Jesus that is given to us. And we see in this this prayer the heart of Jesus revealed in a special way. We see God praying to God and our, our mind uh, bends uh, under the weight of that mystery. And just the fact that we get to read this should, you know, it should make you aware of the profound, profound privilege that you've been given this right to handle holy things. 
This is an important passage. These are important verses. Um, the words we're reading in John 17 are powerful. Now, uh, John Knox. John Knox was a leader in the, the Reformation um, in, in Scotland in the, in the late 1500s. Okay? He, he left the Roman Catholic Church, which he had been a part of, at a great cost and, and a great risk to himself. And he preached the scriptures to people, uh, having to run for his life on more than one occasion. Uh, it, it's not a real cheerful time in church history, uh, actually, as far as everyone getting along. Uh, it wouldn't have been a happy life by most standards. But at, at the end of a life well-lived, uh, he lay dying, and, and he asked his wife, Margaret, to read him John chapter 17. And, and he told her, here is where I first cast my anchor. Uh, he identified this chapter, John 17, as the chapter that brought him to the Lord and sustained him through his ministry, a very difficult ministry, and, and even comforting him in death. Once she had read this passage, John chapter 17, and he heard for the last time on this earth how his Savior was praying for him, he said, Is not that a comfortable chapter? think comforting. And, and it is. It, it, you may not call it comfortable because you don't speak 16th century English, but it is a comforting chapter. It is comforting to know that we get to look at a passage that has such influence on the saints of God and has throughout the church history. Uh, and, and I must remind you that this prayer, while it was prayed in the upper room in Jerusalem on the night that Jesus was betrayed, you know, in time and space in history, it was also prayed for 16th century reformers like John Knox and for 21st century Christians uh, that are reading it now. Uh, this is a prayer for those who are here believing in Jesus. Verse 20 gives us the light we need to receive this passage where Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, as we come to verse 6, we really get into the things that Jesus prays for the disciples. Verses 1 through 5, which we covered last week, were Jesus' prayers about himself, mostly. He prays for himself in ways that we simply cannot. He prayed, Father, glorify your Son. He asks for God's glory to be His. And, and this isn't something that we can pray for. We can pray, glorify Jesus, God glorify your Son, Jesus, but we're not Jesus. So we'll always be a step removed from the magnitude of Christ's prayer here. And, and the reason He can pray like this, and one reason why you can't, is shown in verse 5. Jesus wasn't asking for glory that he didn't already know about. He wasn't uh, looking forward to something he didn't already remember. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is a crazy verse. These are the deep things of God where Jesus claims eternity and the glory of God to be his. If you missed last week's sermon, go online, check it out or listen to the podcast, or whatever, however you can find it. Um, it'll catch you up to where we are now. Now, uh, verses 1 through 5 was his prayer for himself. Verses 6 through 19, even though we're not getting all the way through 19, are for his disciples. And then in verse 20, as we read, he's going to move his prayer to all disciples, all believers, asking for a supernatural unity of all Christians. Uh, today we're only going to make it through verse 16. So we'll start in verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. 
they were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them, given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now think again of, of John Knox on his deathbed, preparing himself for a good death. And when he hears John 17 read, he calls it comfortable. This is because he took these words personally. Now think of the 11 men in the room with Jesus, in the upper room, who heard these words firsthand. Well, what else had they just heard? They heard Jesus say, I'm leaving you and you can't come. You can't follow me anymore. They heard Jesus say, in the world you will have tribulation, you will weep, you will mourn. They heard Jesus say, the day is coming when all those who kill you will think they offer God's service. They heard Jesus say, you will all scatter. They would not be faithful to him in his time of need. Peter heard him say, you will deny me. The disciples are keenly aware of their own weakness of their own failings. So now they hear comforting, how, how comfortable these words would have been from Jesus. The disciples heard that Jesus had manifested the name of God to them in verse 6. This is reminiscent of Moses in the cleft of the rock after asking God, show me your glory. And you think of Thomas even in chapter 14 saying, show us the Father and that will be enough. And God Speaking to Moses in, in Exodus, he, he hides him, he passes by, and he declares the name of God to Moses. Jesus has now manifested or shown the name of God to the disciples. How do you show a name? How is it done? Well, in, Mo, in the Moses passage, this is Exodus 34, verse 5. Exodus 34, 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Jesus says, I have manifested your name. I have embodied the mercy of God, the grace of God, the long-suffering of God, the goodness of God and the truth of God, the forgiveness of God, the justice of God, I have shown it to you. You have seen what that looks like. This is comforting. It is honoring. God has honored you by showing you what he is like in the face of Jesus. When Jacob prays to the Lord in Genesis 32, verse 10, he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. I am unworthy. I'm not worthy of the least of the truth that you've shown me. We are unworthy to have what we have been given. We are unworthy of what we have been shown, but we've been handpicked for this blessing. That's the next thing we can be comforted by in verse 6. 
I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Yes, the disciples were aware of their weakness. So are we. We ought to be, at least. But Jesus is making it very clear right here. He is praying this out loud. They can hear him. The disciples were God's men. They were his to give, and he, the Father, gave them to the Son. And in the course of this prayer, we'll read that the Son returns them now to the Father. Guys, this is still true of you. God has given you to Jesus. Jesus, your, your, your intercessor, your Savior, has entrusted you to the Father. And as Moses prayed in Exodus 34, verse 9, Even though we are a stiff-necked people, you pardon the iniquity. You pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. You are the inheritance that God the Father has given his son. You are his prize. You are his possession. Hearing this from the, from the lips of Jesus probably reminded the disciples of his words to them in John 10, not too long ago. In John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. Jesus said, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. These are comforting words. Now still in verse 6, the end, it says, And they have kept my word. Now we usually think of this terms, this in terms of simple obedience. That if you keep a commandment, then you do it. They did what they were told. But there's more. There's more to keeping the word than just that. Jesus explains in verse 8, For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. That last phrase, they believe that you sent me, is, is the meat. That is the force behind keeping his words. Keeping the word was believing in Jesus. That is keeping the word of God. In John, of course, we have the subtleties of the word logos for word. In John 1, we saw that Jesus is the word of God. But Jesus also uses words, just like we do in the normal way. And Jesus is saying, they kept my word. They believe what I said, and they believe I am from you. But in doing this, they were also keeping the living word. They were clinging to Jesus himself. And while we and probably the disciples in the upper room would have been hung up on the idea of their own failures and shortcomings, Jesus, their great high priest, intercedes for them and says, they have kept my word. Now, isn't there something in you that recoils at that idea or rejects that idea? That says, well, no, they didn't really, though. They they didn't actually keep the word. There's something in your fallen nature that says, when faced with the truth of God's sanctifying power, well, not, not me, Lord. Oh, don't wash my feet. God has made you holy. And there's a piece of your mind, perhaps, that says, well, not, no, he hasn't. Or maybe worse, well, no, he can't. But here Jesus prays to the Father, about the, these failures that he just said, you're all going to leave me scattered. You're going to leave me alone. And about those men, he prays to the Father, they have kept my word. You chose them. You gave them to me. 
And he, he explains what it means to keep the word. They believe me. Jesus gives you a positive performance review. He tells the Father that you are good, not because of your actions, but because you are His. You will always fall short in deeds. But because of your faith, Jesus says, they've kept my word. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Jesus prays in verse 9. Skip down to verse 9. He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. The union of the Father and Son. Now, how, how they share glory. These, these are things we've spoken of before. Um, we can only ever get to the surface of these deep truths. But there are a couple of things that are somewhat unique and worth noting this time around in these verses. One, Jesus says, I do not pray for the world. Uh, we'll talk about that. And then he says at the end there in verse 10, I am glorified in them. That's the disciples. He is making a distinction between the world and those who are his. When he speaks of the world here, uh, he is speaking of the world system, the fallen humanity that is under the sway of the wicked one. Worldliness speaks of a sinful nature. That's the world he's talking about. This distinction between the world and the disciples, it's key. And it's prevalent in the writings of the apostles. There is an in and there is an out. There is an exclusivity to the church, to the people of God. And you cannot straddle the line. Here Jesus is saying, I'm not praying for the world. Now he's not, he's not praying for unbelievers. He's not praying for the lost. He's praying for these men and he's saying, I'm not praying for them as if they were lost. They're not. They're found. He's not praying for unbelievers. He's not praying the, the, for the lost. Now, of course, he's not talking in universal absolutes like, I never pray for those guys. They're the worst. Uh, we know that he does. He prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But here in this unique prayer in John 17, he is narrowing his focus, the subject matter, praying only for the disciples, only for those who are his. Again, as disciples in the room, this is profoundly comforting. They have been given a, a status, an elevated status, out of the world. They have been taken from the world. When Jesus says, I don't pray for the world, but I I am praying for these guys. What they're hearing is, I am not of the world. Christ has taken me from the world, from the fallen mass of humanity, and he has made me something else. They are set apart from those outside the walls. Now, of course, they, like Christ, will be sent to these masses to love, to heal, to teach, to minister to, but unless they had been set apart from them initially, they would be useless for that ministry. Jesus prays for those who are his. But because they have been set apart from the world, Jesus could also pray that he is glorified in these men. Again, consider what is about to take place. They're going to go to the garden. There's the sleeping in the garden when they should have been praying. Peter Cuts off a guy's ear because he's a bad shot with a, with a knife. Then there's the scattering, and each one leaves Jesus alone. Think of them sitting in the room, doors locked on Saturday after the crucifixion, afraid, faithless. Or if you will, think of the disciples before all of this, asking Jesus if they could call fire from heaven on the Samaritans. 
fighting with each other about who is the greatest, asking Jesus for special privileges and, and, a, and a, you know, a special seating arrangement in heaven. These disciples, they vacillate between fear and arrogance, often prompt, prompting Jesus to say things to them like, Oh, ye of little faith, and have I been with you so long? These men, these are the ones who Jesus says, I am glorified in them. They have kept my word. I know you are aware of your own failures. And Jesus says, I am glorified in them. Now you guys know I'm not, I'm not just preaching it this way to make you feel nice about yourself. If you've been listening to my teaching for any length of time, you know that I deliver the bad news part of the good news. Uh, I, I try to leave the teeth in it as best I can. Uh, I have no interest in tickling ears, but, but you have to see this. This is the good news. This is good news. This doesn't preach any other way. God is willing to be glorified in you. Jesus says that he is glorified in the lives of men like these, in the lives of people like you. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, in light of the truths that we see in this prayer, we can rejoice in seeing that Jesus will bring us to that end intended. He will allow us to glorify God. He will draw glory for himself out from your life. And we pray with Jacob, we are unworthy of the least of this mercy and this truth. Look at verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom I gave me, those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, just like there was a distinction made between those who are in the world and those who are his, there's another kind of distinction made between Jesus, who is now going out of the world, and the disciples, who for now have to stay. And then there's a further distinction between those who are kept and the one who is lost. Notice he does not say, I am going out of the world, but rather, I am no longer in the world. We noticed last week that Jesus has already spoken his first, it is finished. He has finished the first part of his ministry and is now set on the second and greater part of his ministry. He has lived the life intended and now he will die the necessary death. When he says, I am out of the world, he's speaking of a, as, um, of a foregone conclusion this prayer is mystical in its nature. Now, there's, there's a way of reading it of just saying, well, he's done with his public ministry, so he's out of the world. He's not in the spotlight anymore. But we know for the next couple of days, he is going to be very much in the spotlight. So we see a, a supernatural, a spiritual nature in this, this prayer. I, we know already that there are mysteries here that are hard to fathom. God is talking to God. How are we supposed to understand this? And we see that the words of Jesus go from human perspective to what appears to be divine perspective throughout this prayer. In the mind of God, it is already done. Jesus is out of the world. Jesus has already left. It is finished. Now, last week I pointed out 
the places where Jesus' prayer can and cannot be imitated. There are things here that we can model, but other places where we can only admire. But this is one that has application for you. After all, Paul writes that you are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Well, that's a mystery that we can't understand. But we have to believe it. And we can certainly be encouraged by it. What God has done will not be tampered with. What he has accomplished will not be defeated. Christ has won. And he has given you a share of his victory. In all of this, we once again see the strength of his grip. He has kept all who are his. Now this prayer uh, that, that he prays, that they would be one as we are one. We'll have to wait on that and talk more about that next week. Um, but what we see is Jesus, who has been entrusted with the baton, so to speak, is passing it back to, to the Father. Uh, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, at the end of this section, Jesus mentions Judas. And none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It is important to notice that this verse does not say, I lost none, except this one guy. Jesus unequivocally says, I lost none. However, one is lost. Now, that's not the same thing as saying, I lost one. I lost none, and one is lost. You can cross-reference this to chapter 18, the next chapter, 18 verse 9, it says that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And there's no exception in that verse. There's no mention of Judas in the chapter 18 verse 9 passage. All who Jesus had are not lost. However, this one Judas was lost. What do you make of that? How do we read that? If Jesus didn't lose him, who lost him? The only reasonable reading comes to this. Judas himself is responsible for the loss of Judas. The scripture that is fulfilled is equally difficult to wrestle with. What scripture prophesied of Judas? Well, actually, it, it wasn't an isolated verse, but actually a whole story. After the Last Supper, Jesus will go out and cross the brook Kidron on his way out of Jerusalem proper. This is the same route that the King David took out of the city when his son Absalom was attempting to overthrow his father's government. It was a rough time in David's life. During that coup, one of David's most trusted advisors, named Ahithophel, turned on David and gave up privileged information to the enemy. And, and this broke David's heart. He would write in Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Ahithophel's betrayal was a foreshadowing of Judas. Both betrayed their friends. Both would meet similar gruesome ends. And Judas, like Pharaoh and every villain before him, could not prevent the plans of God, and instead unwittingly became a part of the plans of God. It shouldn't surprise us that God uses sinners like Judas. Judas is not the surprising or even the confusing part of the narrative. The amazing part is that there weren't twelve Judases. Verse 13, Jesus says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
This is another encouraging verse, another anchor for the disheartened. Speaking to God in the hearing of the earthbound disciples for the purpose of lifting their hearts with the very joy of Christ. Jesus is not praying for the disciples that they would behave. He doesn't ask the Father, put a hedge of protection around them, or that they would be good employees until he gets back. He is praying for joy unspeakable to be theirs. And this is important. He is praying from joy as well. He is asking that the disciples would have his joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus was filled with joy. How can this be? Since we know his heart was troubled. Chapter 12. We know that he was aware of the sufferings. He knew what was coming, what the cross would mean. He was not ignorant of the torment that awaited him, and suffering was not just something that existed at the end of his life. He was fully man, and man was born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, Job 5.7. Uh, Isaiah 53, verse 3, it says that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, but he had joy and was wanting to share it. Joy isn't dependent on circumstances. Now, they can help, but they don't determine Jesus had joy because he had unbroken fellowship with the Father. And as he prays for unity of believers, the unity between the disciples and his Father, Jesus knew what he was really asking for. Joy upon joy. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To be in God's presence is joy. Joy is sourced from its maker. Jesus isn't praying that the disciples would know God, be with God, and then have joy on the side. They're one and the same. To be with God is to have joy. To be one with God is to have His joy in you. Verse 14. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, the hatred coming from the world, this is something that Jesus has talked about before in the last chapter. This has been discouraging for the disciples, no doubt. But Jesus has said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. For I have overcome the world. This is indeed good news. But this does not mean that the first part of that promise, the part about the trouble, is somehow pushed aside. And just so the disciples don't misunderstand what Jesus is praying, he makes it very clear in this part of his prayer in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Be sure you understand this. It is not the will of God for you to be taken from the troubles of this world. If it were, you'd already be dead. Or, you know, or maybe he would have taken you up in the chariots of fire, Elijah style, you know. The disciples could go on throughout the rest of their lives knowing that they had been placed where they are, as it says in the book of Esther, for such a time as this. And I believe you can have the same confidence. Do not look at the world and say, well, at least I don't have to live here forever. No. Uh, don't, don't say, good thing Jesus is going to come and take us 
take us all out of here so we don't really have to worry about the trouble. No. Or it's all going to burn anyway. Now, I'm not, I'm not questioning the theology of that, those, that statement, fire is mentioned, okay? The Lord delivering his people. All of these are biblical themes, to be sure. But the attitude that Jesus saves the disciples from is this attitude that they were meant to depart rather than stay and minister. Jesus prays, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. I'm not asking that you take them out of harm's way. I'm not asking that you take them out of the sinful culture that they live in. In Psalm 23, we read, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and for centuries, people reading the psalm have noticed, much to their own discouragement, that it does not say, you will lead me around the valley, or help me avoid the valley. Not the way it works. When Israel is taken captive and exiled in Babylon, the general attitude, as you can imagine, was, get me out of here, destroy this place so that I can go home, or just run out the clock. You know, someone said 70 years, I'll just wait it out. Uh, <laughs> the word of the Lord from Jeremiah was contrary to this kind of escapism. Jeremiah 29 verse 7 says, Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you, have, you will have peace. When Jesus speaks of the salt of the earth and the city on a hill, the focus is on maintaining a notable distinction, being different from the world, that you might help the world. The warning is against salt losing its flavor, and the same distinction is emphasized here in verse 16, they are not of the world. But what is assumed is that the city would be on a hill on this planet, and the salt would be somewhere it could be tasted. Jesus left his disciples on the earth on purpose. And I imagine that, that having heard this prayer for them, after the Holy Spirit came and, and brought these things to their, ministry, their memory, excuse me, I imagine that this prayer would have given them great courage to fulfill their callings, to fulfill their ministries, knowing Christ had left, has left me here in this trouble, in this trouble, to bring glory to himself. He left the disciples on the earth on purpose. He has left you on the earth on purpose. What do you suppose that purpose is? I think you kind of find out in this prayer or in the catechism. It's to glorify the Son of God. We see that the purpose of the disciples was to bring glory to Christ, to be His, to be God's, to be loved by Him. And this is a great purpose it is a worthy purpose, and one that is great enough for all of our lives on this earth and into the next. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you thanking you that you pray for us. And we, we know that your prayers are better than ours and more powerful than ours. And, and we thank you that you have the right words. Thank you that you pray for us. Thank you, God, that you have taken us that you say good things about us based on your merits. It's just by grace through faith. Thank you that we are yours. You know, we're your disciples. We can't get enough of this truth. We confess that we are unworthy of the least of the mercies and the truth that you've shown us. But we receive this mercy and this truth. We believe what you say about us. 
We pray, God, that we would be able to walk in this truth faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.